I'm Christopher Leiden for Open Source with Claire Massoud from the stage of the Brattle Theatre in Harvard Square. She is the novelist of social nuance, especially the crushable inner life of girls. You could say that her new one, The Burning Girl, is a suburban Boston version of Elena Ferranti's Linu and Lena in 1960s Naples or of Zadie Smith's swing-time soul sisters in interracial London. But it would be unfair not least to the guy fixations on the same rough terrain back to Tom Sawyer. Boy friendships at the brink. For me, the burning girl about Cassie and Julie coming apart became my own unwritten novel from eighth grade. Whatever happened to Ronnie, Binker, Eddie? What was going on in our families, our secret selves at age 11? Claire Massoud's general answer is, you'll never know for sure, and you'll never stop wondering. At the Brattle, Claire Massoud began with a reading from her book. It's a different story depending on where you start. Who's good, who's bad, what it all means. Each of us shapes our stories so they make sense of who we think we are. I can begin when Cassie and I were best friends, or I can begin when we weren't anymore, or I can begin at the dark end and tell it all backward. There's no beginning before, though. Cassie and I met at nursery school, and I can't remember a time when I didn't know her, when I didn't pick her sleek white head out of a crowd and know exactly where she was in a room and think of her some ways as mine. Cassie was tiny with bones like a bird. She was always the smallest girl in the class, and the span of her ankle was the span of my wrist. She had shiny white blonde hair, almost albino she was so fair, her skin translucent and a little pink. But you'd be wrong to mistake her size and pallor for frailty. All you had to do was to look into her eyes, still blue eyes that turned gray in dark weather like the water in the quarry, and you could see that she was tough. Strong, I guess, is a better word, although, of course, in the end, she wasn't strong enough. But even when we were small, she had a quality about her, a what the hell and I'm not chicken, are you sort of way. According to my mother and to Cassie's mother, Bev, Cassie and I became friends in the second week of nursery school when we were four years old. That was always the story, though I can't tell now whether I remember it or have just been told so many times that I invented the memory. I was playing with a group of kids in the sandbox, and Cassie stood in the middle of the playground, hands at her sides like a zombie, staring at everything, not apparently nervous, but totally detached. I left my friends to come touch her elbow, and I said, so I was told, hey, come build a castle with me. And she broke into that rare, broad smile of hers, a famous smile made all the better when she was bigger by the Georgia Jagger gap between her front teeth. She came with me back to the sandbox. And that, my mother always said, was that. Thank you. Thank you, Claire, and thank you, everybody. I'm honored to be on the stage with Claire Massoud. Not a spoiler thing, but I just want to be clear in my own head that I got the ending. Or did you mean for me to get it? There is a tension between these girls, and there is a parting, and there is an event. And it's not quite explicit. There are three critical words that may have been heard, may have been misheard, may not have been spoken. But do we know what happened? Do I know what happened? Do we ever know what happened? Interesting. I mean, it's one of my obsessions, you know, one of my preoccupations is the degree to which 
in fact, we are uncertain about so much, and yet it is a very uncomfortable thing to be. And so we tell stories in order, in fact, to resolve and cover over our uncertainties. And I, I read something that I found very interesting about the fact that our eyes take in an image and our brain only registers about 30% of what our eyes see. And the rest our brain fills in with what we've already experienced and what we already know. And so I'm aware that we do that in life all the time. And we think we know people because we have these sort of constellation of points. It's like that Cambridge Analytics thing, right? <laughs> you, you have a constellation of points and then you oh, think, that I, number, you I, know. I know, I know, I know. Oh, that girl who was caught giving blowjobs, I know that story, I know that girl, right? And we don't ask further questions, we tell a story and we simplify it. A story of the friendship between two girls coming unraveled, I know that story. I've heard that story a thousand times, but actually you never know the story. This book has many strange effects on me, a reader. I have three daughters and two granddaughters, all of whom have passed or are approaching your demographic moment here. But it also had other effects. It reminded me, among other things, of a, a conversation we had with Tom Parada during the Republican primaries in 2015 and 16. And we were just looking, at, especially the Republican side, and one candidate you know, ravaging the whole field and whatnot. But he said the interesting thing is every one of these candidates you knew in high school. You knew a Ted Cruz. You certainly knew the Jeb Bush guy. You knew... Uh, and you, you knew the Donald Trump guy. You did. You did. And, and you um, didn't vote for him then. <laughs> no. No, but it, <laughs> no, but in, in our case, and I'm not going to say the town or the guy's name because his father was the car dealer, naturally, swagger, girls, the whole thing. But I, I Googled him a couple of nights ago, and I found his son, who is now the basketball coach in the town, which is a little lower than the guy aspired to, I think. He's a gun charge against him, and a stay order by his wife has been let go. But I thought, wow, wow. All of these stories come back. Should we write these things down? Should we check them out? Should we pursue them? Well, we, we now sort of can because of the internet. If, you're, if you want to pursue them, you sort of can. Although, you know, what you find out may or may not be entirely the truth. I, I had the experience with this book. You know, there are always various things that go into the writing of a book, different moments and, and experiences and so on. And one of them was something I'd had in my head a long time. And it's when I was a child, we lived in Australia, and we left when I was nine and moved to Canada. And in those days, you kept in touch with your friends by writing letters. So I had several friends who I kept in touch with. We were pen pals. And when we were about the age of the girls in the book, they wrote to me about something that had happened to one of our classmates who was, it was a small class. We were all friends, you know. I wrote a play in fourth grade, and she had a starring role. Anyway, and, um, and there'd been a whole sequence of events, and she tragically had died. And I was haunted all my life by the fact that I only had those fragments. It was like the Gospels or something. I, I had these different letters, but I was thousands of miles away. I never spoke to on the phone. You know, you didn't in those days. I didn't speak on the phone to my friends. They were also kids still. So how much did they actually know that was true? How much of it was rumor? How much was what, you know? How much of your letters were gossip? I mean, did you hear about her or him or... I, I mean, they did. They told me what different, you know, fragments of what they understood to have happened. And so more recently, I looked up 
the announcement, you know, the notice about it in the paper from that time. And it was a completely different story from what I'd been told. I mean, all the details were different. And my first impulse was to think I completely misremembered what all my friends told me all those years ago. And then I thought, no, no, that's the official story. And that was always the official story. And whether what I got was an untrue story those details came from somewhere. The kids didn't make them up. So then, you know, there is this philosophical question. We're all stuck in our subjectivities. How do you get out of it? Is there a truth? Is that a table? Do we will the table? I don't know. That is a table, but I'm disappointed in myself that I didn't, I wasn't more curious, more articulately curious about kids I grew up with. But life sweeps Maybe it's not you too on. Late. But life sweeps you on, you know. You're, you and them, yeah. You, you can't be both. I mean, that is one of the things in... In this book, you know, which is about two friends, it's about the narrator and her friend Cassie, Julia and Cassie. It's a sort of time-honored template, the friendship that one tells the story of the other. And, you know, the one that comes to mind, of course, is Brideshead, Brideshead Revisited. And you'll remember it's very literal there. It's Charles Ryder and Sebastian Flight. Charles Ryder, the earthbound, plodding, dull observer who watches the spectacular rise and fall of his much more interesting friend. You know, you can't actually be living the life and recording the life. For all, all the aspiring writers in the audience, I'm sorry, you're doomed to, doomed to the very dull, <laughs> the dull periphery of, of life, but you know. I, I want to change the subject, but you've given me a, an opening. If there's something I missed in this story, it is, and especially when the girls are younger, is kind of erotic energy. And by that, I don't mean a sexual energy or a sexual definition of it, certainly, but there's a frisson, a kind of charisma or charm or lure or excitement or curiosity between kids, even at 6, 8, 10, that I didn't feel in this story. And I wondered, uh, for example, the girls in the, the Ferrante stories. Why did um, I know he would say that? <laughs> but they, they're just jumping with a kind of erotic energy. I'm sorry to hear that. For me, I was writing about the narrator is somebody who is fairly restrained and she's not a wild child by any means, no. right? I knew that Ferrante would come up and I love those books and we've talked about them. Yeah. But if you think of the span of those books and the ambition of those books, right? The scale is much bigger and the span in which they're little girls is actually probably 30 pages or 40 pages before they move into adolescence, maybe 50, right? It's not the first volume. By the time you get to the end of the first volume, they're sexual beings. I mean, the scale of this is much smaller. <laughs> Much smaller. I mean, it's a different book. It's also about female friendship, but it's a very, its aims are different and it, it's just a different thing. And I think it's actually, it was true in my generation and watching my daughter and her friends, I think it's true for a lot of girls even today. One of the things that happens for girls in adolescence is that you have to make a choice, right? And one of the choices that you make is, as it were, to opt out of the sexual economy. Right? I've had already parents you know, saying, look, this is a picture of my daughter wearing a sort of great big hoodie and baggy jeans, and this was her friend until she was 12, and it's a girl with sort of done hair makeup and a push-up bra. Like, they were best friends until that happened. And Julia is much more on the you know, hoodie end of things, and so I wasn't somebody who was at ease expressing erotic charges. To sort of turn it a little bit, the book is conceived in three sections, right? And the first section is childhood. Mm. And it is strongly influenced by fairy tales and by 
two children go into a wood and have an adventure. Ever heard that story before? Right? I mean, to come back to what I was saying earlier, you know, one of my other obsessions besides being trapped in our subjectivities is that we are as much the sum of our literarily lived lives as we are of our literally lived lives. So our understanding of how to make a story and how to make meaning is entirely formed by the stories that we have been exposed to. And when you're a child and you're exposed to fairy tale, you're exposed to myth, you're exposed to a world in which Animals, for example, are, are agents, they're actors, they have personalities, they have meaning, they're the protagonists of half the stories that you've heard. You know, a dog is telling you something, a bird is telling you something. That's an experience that we all live through as children. But it's also about friendship without context. So, I mean, two girls go into a wood, like into a forest where there's a lake and a crumbling castle. I feel like Dr. Freud is in the back room taking notes. So there is some sense, though, that they're in an imaginative world that is in which they are hermetically together, but free within the confines of that. The second section I think of as time passes, right? Time passes. It's about the opening of that world to a wider context, the context of demographics, the context of of social influence, you know, class, prospects, intellect, other people's opinions, the things that come between young people. And, And this strange time that in middle school suddenly things have wider consequences. Like you get, you know, say you're eight and you get stopped by a policeman, unless you're doing something really terrible, he's, he might reprimand you, but he'll probably send you home. When you're 13, if you're 13 or 14 and you get stopped by a policeman for doing something you shouldn't, you get in trouble, right? Something has happened. You're moving into the adult world. In the third section, they are nominally in an adult world. Nominally, they aren't living in a world of imagination. Supposedly, they're not making stuff up. But actually, because we do it, we all do it every day, both girls are making up, inventing stories just as much as when they were playing, you know, witches and fairies and knights and lovelorn ladies in the castle in the woods. And indeed, the presence of animals, you know, we think, oh, isn't it sweet that children think that, you know, animals um, have personalities and meaning, but anybody in the audience who has a pet, you know that your particular animal or animals, has, they have personality and meaning. And I would say, you know, when my parents in their last years, they would go every day to the park and count the swans. And I would speak to them every evening. And part of our conversation every evening was how many swans they had seen in the park that day. And now, whenever I see two swans, I see my parents. And I think that there are many people who, over the course of life, having thought that they were rational and eschewed all the wonder and mystery of childhood, find that that actually the wonder and mystery of childhood are abiding. Last question for me. Did you say, or did somebody say, or did I just sort of sense that this is a sort of a YA novel for grown-ups? It's about- No. No, okay. (laughs) Um, It's just about the kind of confluence of voices One of the girls has a very strong mother in the story, the other less so, but the girls, like all girls, speak like their mothers sometimes, they speak like themselves or their contemporaries other times, but what is the mix in your composition of the story and the language of yourself as grown-up child and yourself as experienced mother? What I've said about it is that it's a children's book for grown-ups. And that that comes back to the the matter of mystery and wonder. And if you think about, if you read with a child a Greek myth, you know, and then Zeus came down and he was um, having a love affair with the maiden and Hera showed up and turned the maiden into a cow. And if you're a child, you just say, okay, 
all right, so she turned into a cow, you know? And, and so it was in that sense, in the sense of the, the mystery and wonder of the world in which we live, that I, I wanted this to be a book that people could read just to experience directly. I wanted it to have that simplicity. But your question was about the voice. And, you know, it, for me, if anybody has read other things I've written, you know I love a bell and whistle. I do. I love the bells and whistles. When I was in college, there was a girl who won a contest and what she got to do was she could have everything in the supermarket that she wanted if, within two or three minutes. So what she decided to do was push the cart down the aisle with her belly and swoop stuff with her arms off the shelves. And that's, that's how I feel about the sentence generally. I feel that the capaciousness and the capacities of the sentence, like how much can you get in a sentence, is incredibly exciting for me in a very perhaps childish way, but it's true. And so for me, I had to put aside my passions and try to be as straightforward as possible. It is a work of art. It is a distillation. It is not a transcript of a teenager talking. My firm belief is that there is nothing in this book that a 17-year-old wouldn't think, experience, feel, notice. And I've spent a lot of time with teenagers in the past few years. And kids, too, notice a lot, you know. But I granted Julia I hope as straightforwardly as possible, perhaps more articulacy than she might otherwise have. But that's my understanding of the role of art, is to articulate the experiences that we have that in daily life we might not articulate. Because that, as a reader, is what I, I really love when I read, is the moment when you're reading something and you think, yes, I know that exactly. I would have never thought to say it, but I know that exactly. That was my hope. The Burning Girl is Plamisud's fifth novel. You're invited to leave a comment on our conversation at radioopensource.org. And you can like what we're up to on the Open Source Facebook page. I'm Christopher Leighton. Thank you for being part of the Open Source Podcast Project. Mm-hmm.